Hello and welcome to Page Parley. This is the show where we speak to authors or experts on creative writing. Today we're speaking to historical fiction author Terry Brown. I'm Terry M. Brown, and I started writing for nonfiction, like business type uh, clients back in 2000. So I've done a lot of article writing and website content and things like that. And that started in 2000. And then in 2017, I finally got the guts. I was really afraid to try to write fiction because it seemed so personal. And, you know, like, you hate to fail at something that's so personable because mm-hmm. what if what if you write it and they hate it, you know? And I thought, I just can't put myself out there like that. Um, but in 2017, I decided to go ahead and try uh, to, to write a novel mm-hmm. and I got it out and it's not very good, but oh, no. It, it, no, it, it isn't. And that's good though. It, it had it, but it had a start and a middle and an end and it had characters. And I learned quite a bit about the writing process and realized I really did have enough words in me to create something, you know, of that magnitude. The reason I don't think it's very good is I have very flat characters. They were perfect. I couldn't let my characters have any flaws. So (laughs) like my main character is better than Superwoman. I mean, she just goes through life (laughs) perfectly. Bad things happen and she just comes up looking like one of those models that comes up out of the swimming pool looking like she's just had her makeup done, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so she's not, she's not real enough, but Mm -hmm. it gave me a real taste for how did that feel to start to start writing. So I began writing novels. And finally, this year, I had my first one come out into the world. So that's so exciting. That's wonderful. Uh, so to backtrack a little bit, was writing something you were into as a, as a young person? Or did that come about later in life? So as a little girl, I said I wanted to be an author. But mm-hmm. I also said I wanted to be an Olympic ice skater and a brain surgeon. So I think I did always lo- love the idea of writing, but I didn't really see how you could turn that into a career. My parents didn't like creative kind of careers. Like you you needed to be a scientist or an accountant or something that had like oomph behind it, right? <laughs> and so I didn't, I just didn't see writing as a way of of being a career unless you could be you know, like super well-known famous. And so I don't, I didn't really ever pursue it. Although as a, as a kid, I wrote all the time. My mom at Christmas this year gave me a poem that I had written that Mm -hmm. she found, and it was written on the back of my grandmother's bank deposit slip. (laughs) So I'm assuming (laughs) that she had fished it out of her purse because I had this idea and I wrote this little poem down. So but, you know, then then you go to college and you get married and have children and it just kind of went away. And then, like I said, I started writing for small businesses and that just came about very accidentally. I homeschooled my children and I needed a way to do something at home. There was a guy who needed someone to help him with his emails and things along that line. And so I was doing a little bit of, you know, virtual assistant kind of work. And he said to me, have you ever considered writing a book? Hmm. And I said, no, I've never, you know, no, not really. And he said, well, I've got a book idea. And his was a nonfiction and it was for his business. 
Mm. And he just wanted to know if I would be able to help him put his thoughts down that he enjoyed the way I wrote his emails. Right. So yeah. I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. So I started doing that and then doing articles. And, and so it kind of like transformed from me helping on a secretarial kind of basis on through to me doing way more writing until I actually just wrote. But I, like I said, I was writing nonfiction. You know, it was about real estate. I've worked with so many different clients on on a variety of things. I, I worked with a chocolatier. I mean, you know, so it's kind of fun. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. There was a lot of research, a lot of interviewing and getting what's in their heads so that you can get it down on paper for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I never did anything. You know, once I kind of got past that teenage angst of writing your poetry, you know, when every time a, a boy made you sad and you had to write the poetry about, you <laughs> yes. know, how the end of the world was coming because of this boy. And, you know, um, I really didn't write again until I was 55 years old. And then I said, I'm going to write this novel. Do you think that when you got to that point where you felt confident enough to do that, do you think that you noticed any different approaches between writing fiction and nonfiction? And do you think that the two different styles of writing inform each other? You know, it's interesting. I definitely write them differently. When I write my nonfiction, I'm very detailed and scheduled. I have an outline. I know where I'm going when I get started. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F. I've got it all written down. Sometimes I go a little off of that because as I'm writing, I realize that I've missed something pretty major. You know, <laughs> oh, I actually need to talk about this beforehand. But in general, you know, I know beforehand where I'm going and I write it. Mm. And I have tried to write fiction that way and it does not work because my characters absolutely refuse to follow an outline. <laughs> so I say to myself, you know, this is what I'm going to have my character do. And my character steadfastly refuses to go there. And no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, we're not going there. And so I've given that up. So I just write. And I feel like it's almost being dictated to me by these characters. It's like, oh, well, obviously, this is what the character would do next. But on the other hand, there's a lot of similarity in that, like, I write historical fiction. Mm. And so to write historical fiction, you have to do research. You have to know what was going on in history at that point in time. And so I think my my research from my nonfiction comes in really handy because I do all of that research beforehand. Mm. And then I write and I can put my character into this place because I now know what this place is. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So on that note, could you tell us a little bit about Sunflowers Beneath the Snow? That's your debut novel, isn't it? Yes, it is. So Sunflowers Beneath the Snow is about three generations of Ukrainian women. And it starts in 1973 and it goes through about 2016, shortly after the last uh, invasion of Russia into Ukraine. The book is extraordinarily timely. And people have asked me, you know, how did you know? And it's like, no, I didn't have any idea. I mean, if you understand the book writing process, I came up with the idea in 2016. I wrote it in 2018. I finally got it accepted by a publisher in 2021, and it came out in January of 2022. So <sighs> no, I did not know. You know, it just, it was truly amazing coincidence that it came out when it did. It basically starts with the oldest woman 
So there's a grandmother, her daughter, and her granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And so that grandmother was married. Her husband was a rebel in 1973 and started doing a little bit of spying. He gets compromised and has to make a decision. And that decision is they're going to kill him or they're going to send him away. Because if they let him just go back to his wife and his family, then he's going to compromise the entire rebel thing that's going on. So he makes the decision to leave Mm -hmm. and he leaves his wife and child behind. And then you follow her and her child and eventually her grandchild Mm -hmm. as they kind of go through Ukraine, starting out as Soviet Ukraine, then becoming independent and then into having um, Russia invade them in 2014. And you just follow those characters along. And it's got a great twist at the end. Ooh, very exciting. It's Ukraine really has had more than its fair share of kicks. It's it's such a an interesting culture to look at, which and it's a shame that it's taken this recent atrocity for people to look into the history of Ukraine if they weren't already, you know, a, a member of uh, or descended from Ukrainians. They've got such rich folklore, such rich personal traditions. Did, was that something that you looked into when you were, especially if you're looking from the perspective of an older generation? I did. And um, I actually started my research long before 1973 because I wanted to understand how did they get to that point? You know, what was that relationship? And then to look into their traditions, oh, the dance and the food mm-hmm. and the even things like their wedding traditions and their, you know, their the naming of their children and the sunflower. You know, and the fact that the sunflower was actually brought to that country and then it it grew so well there that it became a part of everything they did. They used every portion of that sunflower, even down to the stalks. They would grind them for flour and they would use them for paper. And it was just it was phenomenal. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed that whole aspect of it. And then you can understand why the people are doing what they're doing now. I think anybody, of course, wants their freedom, but they have this tradition they're desperate to keep. And they got it back when they they got out of the Soviet Ukraine and, you know, became just Ukraine. And now it's trying to be like taken from them again. And, and they're not having it. I mean, as you can see, they're they're going to fight. They're going to fight to the end. And it's amazing how strongly I feel about it because I'm not Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. All of this bothers me way more than I think most for most people. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in the United States. And for us, we wake up in the morning and nothing really has changed here. You know, our gas prices are a little higher and there's news blurbs about it. But it didn't change anything about the way I do my daily life. But I feel a connection that is really, really strong. I wake up every morning and I read the news and I I cry over the the devastation that I see. And yeah, it's just really, it's kind of crazy how that happens when you get involved in something like that. Mm -hmm. You've done the research and you don't know what it's like personally to be Ukrainian, but you pretty close from an outsider's perspective, you've become informed about their way of life and what they're fighting for. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that literature can really do. I think people forget, you know, we read books for pleasure mostly, but books also inform and they help you to step into the shoes of people that you wouldn't otherwise maybe even meet. 
you know, here in the United States, you aren't likely to run into too many people who are from Ukraine recently, Mm. you know, maybe generationally, but not, and, and especially I live in a little coastal town in North Carolina. You're not going to meet many people here that, that have a, a, a very different background than what I have. And so to be able to get into a book and meet characters and live their life with them for 300 pages. And so that gives you a different perspective on the whole thing. And I think, you know, that's what I'm really hoping the book can do now that, that this, you know, horrible coincidence that this is happening when my book came out. Well, what do I hope my book can do? Well, I hope it can help people gain an empathy that they might not have been able to gain otherwise, because I think the only way that we can get rid of war and hatred is to have an empathy and compassion. And you can't have an empathy and a compassion until you feel that you know someone or understand that situation in some way. And this book can at least give you a background and give you an understanding of what's happening today. Do you think that fiction is important in that way to allow people from a different culture to explore maybe other lifestyles, other ways of existing in this world. So say uh, your novel is an example, but say uh, stories from uh, from Africa, from Asia, from uh, the from the Pacific Islands, uh, that fiction might give us uh, n- not the full perspective of what it's like to be from that culture, but maybe allow us to have uh, to empathize and to feel more connected. Yes, absolutely. None of us can experience everything. You know, I can't I can't go to Ukraine right now. Most of us can't. We can't really know what's happening there. We often, you know, we live in whatever area that we live in and we're surrounded by the people that that flit in and out of that that area that we're in, but that doesn't encompass everybody and everybody's lifestyle and what they've felt or experienced. You you only get so much time to experience what you experience. And so I think that fiction can help you experience things you wouldn't otherwise ever get the chance to, you know, um, or that you could never get the chance to. You know, I I can't ever be a male president president of the United States in 1970. I mean, Mm. do you know what I'm saying? Like, like I can't do that, but I could read about it Mm -hmm. and I could gain some understanding of, well, what was that like and and what did they experience? And, you know, so yeah, I think that reading can, can take you places and help you Mm. see things and experience things that you just won't necessarily get the chance to do any other way. Absolutely. Wonderful. What is your next project? Do you have an idea of where you where you'd like to travel next in your mind? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so actually I just had my second book accepted by the publisher. Oh, so well done. Really, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So it's called An Enemy Like Me mm-hmm. and it is um based in World War II, but it explores the idea the main character is a first generation American. He's from Germany. And when he finally signs up for to, to fight in the war, he believes he's going to fight the Japanese and he ends up in Germany. And so here he is, a first generation American from mm. Germany. His parents speak German. His, his home was German. The food he ate was German. And he's in Germany. And he recognizes that those people that are the enemy 
are more like him than they are different from him. Mm. And so we kind of explore that whole idea of this, this angst of war. You know, governments kind of start wars and regular ordinary people fight them. And those people that we have labeled the enemy are probably those kind of people that we might have over for dinner, Mm -hmm. given any other circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so we see it from his point of view, his wife's point of view, and then his four-year-old son who was left behind his point of view. That that's such an interesting aspect. I think the the left behind aspect is one that maybe more people can relate to, uh, it, especially in the modern day. I think obviously, as fewer and fewer survivors of World War Two are you know, still alive, we're left with the second hand accounts of their children and their grandchildren mm-hmm. who experienced them and the aspects that they felt that they could share. But there's so much that they couldn't share. Not just didn't want to, couldn't because of right. the, the the mental anguish it would bring up so i think that preserving the experience of the of the people who lived that firsthand is important but also exploring the the lived reality of the people who were left behind who will never fully understand why the person who came home was different or not having them come home at all my grandfather fought in world war 2 and he fought in germany and we are German American, but eight, nine, ten generations. But he said one time to me when I was a teenager that he always found it kind of shocking that while he was in Germany and you know there were bullets flying everywhere, that the people that were the enemy might be a cousin. And he talked very little about the war. Mm-hmm. But that was one thing he did say, and it stuck with me all those years. And so I decided I'm going to kind of explore that and see where it goes. So the character is really loosely based off of my grandfather, but but not. It was more that idea that, you know, who we're at war with in any other situation, if they were to move in next door, you'd invite them over for dinner, or you would take them cookies. We're so much more alike than we are different. And if we could understand that, Imagine what our world could be like if we could just focus on the things that are alike as opposed to the things that are different. It's also interesting that you mentioned the aspect of him considering that he was going to go and fight the Japanese and then Mm -hmm. going to Germany. Does he uh, explore any introspection about that? Then thinking, well, I wonder if I could relate to the Japanese in a way now that I've experienced the idea of enemies being closer. He was able to very easily hate the Japanese. I mean, I have him showing a real ability to just, Mm. you know, and then when he realizes that he's going to be going to Germany, he goes through a real scary, like, how am I going to handle this? And then at the point that he realizes how much he's like the enemy, he begins to understand war in general, Mm. that, that, Yes, normal people, it's just regular everyday fathers and now mothers who are fighting in a war to preserve their home. The political stuff behind the scenes that got the war started really isn't why the actual soldier is fighting. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, you know. The, the governments have all of these reasons and then these wars pop up, but the people fighting them, they're fighting to just 
save their families from whatever it is they believe is going to happen if the war doesn't go their way. Mm-hmm. And and they're more alike, you know. They're they're also writing letters home. They're mm-hmm. also missing their wives and their children. Mm-hmm. They're also missing uh, home cooked meals. Mm-hmm. They're also scared. We kind of paint the enemy in our mind as whatever it is that you can can shoot at. They're ugly and they're they're mean and they're brutes and they have to be because how else do you shoot? Mm-hmm. And then you meet them, you mm-hmm. know, and and it changes how you feel. I think that's true of pretty much anything. Whenever there's whenever there's someone that you're afraid of for some reason because you don't understand them or they're different or whatever, and you meet someone from that group, whatever that group is, and you get to know them personally, now you have to change your opinion. You either have to have decided in your head this was an exception. Everyone else is still bad. Just this one person is an exception. Or you have to change your mind about that group. Mm -hmm. It really shows how you've developed as a writer from this perfect heroine that could do no wrong to an incredibly flawed person at the beginning of the book who is uh, who's racially profiling, has all these negative opinions and is really caught up in the propaganda of the time and how they develop over the course of the novel, whether for, for good or for ill. So that really shows how you've come on as a writer. <laughs> yeah, like I said, that first book, well, you have to start somewhere. And I tell people all the time that that if if you saw a famous painter's first painting, you would probably shake your head and wonder how they ever got to where they were. That Those firsts are never good. You have to start somewhere, figure out where are your strengths and where are your weaknesses, and then you know build upon all of that. You you don't just write the great American novel the first time you decide <laughs> to write something on paper, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely, yeah. On that topic of development and growing, what do you think are some of the uh, ingredients to a good story? For me, it's character. If I don't understand that character, if I can't feel something about that character, even if they're so different from me, if I can't connect in some way, then the book always just leaves me really flat. I just, I can't get into it. Even people that we aren't alike, we have very little shared experience. We're still human. And if you can get me to feel their humanity, then you've caught me and I am willing to go with you into this story and find out more about what's going on with this person that I know nothing about and up until then had no connection to. Mm -hmm. So it's the humanity to me. If you can make your characters, so this is true whether you're writing historical fiction or whether you're writing fantasy, if you want me to go into that story with you, I have to be able to connect with the characters. Now, I don't know that that's true for everyone, but that's true for me. Mm-hmm. I really need a character connection. There are a lot of books that that focus a lot on like world building and, and creating all of these worlds. And that's fine. It doesn't touch me. Mm-hmm. Unless you've got a good character in that world, I'm not invested. So that's really what I work on is that connection with people. And then in terms of what other elements if it's historical fiction, I believe that your history needs to be as true as possible, given that you have fictional characters in a historical setting. But the history needs to, to be true. Um, you have to have enough setting that 
people aren't lost and wonder where they are, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but not but not so much that they get bogged down by all the details. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the characters have to be real enough that you see the flaws mm-hmm. and that you see some kind of growth. You don't want a flawed character to stay flawed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or if they do stay flawed, you want to see why. There's got to be purpose and reason behind it all, at least for me. That's that's a very good point. Thank you so much. Well, and again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. If people want to hear more from you, where can they go? They can go to my website and it's www.terrymbrown, and that's Terry with one R, dot com. There you can meet up with me on all my social media. So I have that all there. You can sign up for my newsletter. And if you sign up for my newsletter, you can get a list of the 10 top historical fiction books you've never heard of that will bring you to tears. Mm. So I, I like looking for books that aren't the ones that make the New York Times bestseller list, but still really have fantastic character development. And so uh, with some help of some good friends who also love historical fiction, we came up with that list. And so you can sign up for that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. Uh, and uh, I hope everyone goes to check out your website. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for listening. You can hear more from Terry on her website. I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or Twitter. This has been a Yorick Radio production. <laughs>